if you can, can you please turn your Bibles once again to Ezekiel chapter 36. And I'll read some verses. I'll read from verse 26. Now, I know Pastor touched briefly on this on Tuesday. And imagine, as he was preaching, as he was mentioning this on Tuesday, I was thinking to myself, am I going to have to change my text? But then it didn't go deep enough, so I thought, well, I might as well continue um, with my preparations. So let's read Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And he reads, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments. And do them. So we see there. The promise made by almighty God. That promise is by God. But primarily it was made to the believers who were in captivity in Babylon. You know, that's the context of Ezekiel and many of those prophets. They were written to assure believers who were in captivity that God has not abandoned them there, that God still has eternal plans for them. But they apply today as well. And what we're going to do is we're going to start from John chapter 3. And if you don't mind, please turn to John chapter 3. We'll come back to Ezekiel. Chapter 6 later. But let's go into John chapter 3. And what we'll be looking is we'll be trying to understand the context in which the Lord rebuked Nicodemus. Because if you're familiar with John chapter 3, there's some slight rebuke of Nicodemus there by the Lord. And the Lord said to Nicodemus, and I quote, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? So the Lord is asking Nicodemus, you know, because prior to the Lord asking Nicodemus that, Nicodemus said, and I quote in verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? So he's asking Christ, how can these things, that is the things that Christ has told him from chapter 1 to chapter 8, how can they be? What do they mean? And the Lord saying, Hang on, you're a Pharisee, you're supposed to know the Bible. You're supposed to know the Tanakh. The Tanakh is what the Israel, the Jews call the Old Testament. You're supposed to know it in and out. And how can you ask this question? But we're living in that day today. I remember this was in my early days as a Christian. So I'm talking about 15 years ago now, actually. Yeah, just over 15 years ago. Um, I think I was, I was a believer for probably about three or four years then. I was speaking to this man, he was a pastor. Well, that's what he calls himself, a pastor. And I was touching on very basic doctrines, such as justification by faith alone and sanctification. And I suddenly realized I was completely losing him. He didn't really understand what I was talking about. And I was thinking, what is this man teaching his congregation? I mean, if you can't understand those basic doctrines of just being justified by Christ, you know, sanctification, you know, being made holy. If you can't understand those things, then where else do you know in Christianity? But, so, we have many Nicodemus today standing behind pulpits. So this question that Christ asks Nicodemus is very, very profound. Because what Christ was describing 
in John chapter 3 was the doctrine of the new birth. And the Lord instructs Nicodemus in verses 3 to 8 about the necessity of the new birth for entry into heaven. See, without the new birth, none can enter heaven because we need to be born again. You see, there are two births that must be experienced by someone who wants to get into heaven. Well, the first birth is all experienced by all of us. We are all born naturally. But then there's the second birth, which is the new birth, being born again. Without that, you can't enter into heaven. And verse 3, the Lord informs Nicodemus that this is a requirement, a requirement of entering into heaven. He said, and I quote, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see it. He cannot touch it. So when he says he cannot see it, he's talking about a twofold here. That person can see it on earth here, and he can't see it in eternity. You see, as Christians, we understand what the kingdom of God is even before we die. You have to understand it before you become born again. And so, so someone who is not a Christian, for example, some of the decisions that Christian makes is mind-boggling to them. They're thinking, have you lost your mind? Why are you doing this? Have you, have you lost your thought reasoning? You see, you're completely misunderstood when you become born again because your thought pattern changes. It comes different from the world. The way you think, the way you behave, the way you appreciate things, when you see nuisances, they completely change when you become born again. And the world will never understand it. Those who are not Christians will never understand it. And so what Christ is saying there is that you have to have this experience to become, to, to enter into heaven. Then in verse 6, Nicodemus is given a brief comparison between the natural and the spiritual birth. And I read, it says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he gives a brief comparison there. See, there's a difference between being born physically and being born spiritually. Now, there are similarities as well. Don't get me wrong, but there are differences. Now, let me tell you what the similarity is. Now, I've had the privilege of experiencing um, physical birth five times because I've got five boys. And I see one thing, is that the child that is being born makes no contribution to the birth. It's the mother that has to carry out the work of, you know, bring the child to life by obeying the instructions of the midwife, and then the child comes. Now, that's the only similarities. In being born again, the new convert plays no part in it. It's an entire work of the Holy Spirit. Only God makes that, that possible. But that's where the similarities end. There are the differences as well. Now, the new convert sees things completely differently. It's a radical change. It's not just a minor fixing of behaviors points here and there. No, it's a complete change from the inside out. The way the person behaves changes. The way the person thinks changes. The way you react to things change. And that's what the new birth is all about. Then finally, in verse 8, Christ gives a description of what the new birth is. And one notable thing is that it is a complete work of God. Now let's read verse 8 again. It says, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and now here is the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. 
So it's everyone that is born of the spirit. So we see here that it's compared to the wind. Now, I don't think the technology exists at the moment to control the wind. If it does, then many of the hurricanes that occur would have been stopped. You see, the wind just blows. And when it blows, well, if it's coming to your direction, you need to get out of the way. Now, I remembered in 2012 when there was a hurricane. I think it was in Northeast America. It was a heavy hurricane. I remember the president saying, please leave your home and get out of the way. You don't stop when a hurricane is coming. It's, otherwise, it's going to consume you along. And this is what being born again is. See, when the Holy Spirit brings about the new conversion, the person is unable to resist. You see, the Holy Spirit brings about conversion in that soul of that new convert, and that person becomes born again. Entirely the work of God. So now we've seen some of the things that our Lord said to Nicodemus. The key thing our Lord is telling Nicodemus is that what I'm telling you, you should know. And what is our Lord telling Nicodemus? He's saying that it's not a New Testament issue at all. This is in your Tanakh. It's in your Old Testament. It's in what you call the book. So how can you be a Pharisee and you not know these things? As a matter of fact, I believe that our Lord was actually very gentle with Nicodemus. You know, if you read Matthew chapter 23, he wasn't so gentle with the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, he pronounced, I think it was about seven or eight woes unto them. And when Christ says woe, I mean, that means no hope. But with Nicodemus, he was a bit gentler. And what I want us to do now is to go through some of the Old Testament scriptures that teach about this wonderful doctrine. And then we come back to Ezekiel chapter 36. And let's start off with the very early part of the Old Testament. And that is in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And I'll read from verse 15. And the Lord said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and thy seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So we see here, what does this mean about being born again? Well, the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ, was saying here that there will be two groups of people in the world from this point when Adam and Eve fell into sin. There will be those who belong to Christ and there will be those who are against Christ. Now, it will culminate in the devil and Christ where Christ will bruise the head of the serpent and the servant will bruise the hill. That is when Christ dies on the cross for his people. But prior to that, there were two groups of people. I can assure you that those who were gods were born again. And this is where the nucleus of that doctrine comes from. For example, Abel was a born again believer. Yes, it might not be the language that they use in the Old Testament, that is used in the New Testament, but that's the actual event. Abel at one point in his life, became a new creature. He became a new convert. We need to understand some of the things in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't give us any new doctrine as such. It only just gives us more information, more enlightenment of Old Testament teaching. But let's carry on to the next one in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. <clears throat> this one is more pronounced than the Genesis text I've read. So Deuteronomy 30 Verse 6. And the Lord thy God 
who circumcised thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. So we see there God promising to circumcise the heart of his people. Now when he says he circumcised the heart, what does it mean? It means basically that that heart will be renewed, will be changed. It will be changed from a heart that hates God to a heart that loves God. And that's what he would do to his people. Again, a work of God. Think about it. It says, uh, and you will sacrifice the heart to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and all thy mind. That may as live. Now, can a non-convert love the Lord with all their hearts, all their mind, all their soul? No. It takes the intervention of the Holy Spirit to make that possible. Yes, it's a command that God rightfully makes. He commands us that we should love him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our being. But naturally, by nature, man hates God. But here, he's promising that he will do this. He will bring about the conversion of people to such that they will love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their being. Let's go to the next one. The next one will be in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. Now read from verse 31. Behold, the day is come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, when you look at that verse 31, what he's saying here is that this covenant will be with the whole Israel. You see, at this point in time, there was the two kingdoms, the divided kingdom, the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. But when you look at this text, and the reason why I can assure you that this is not physical Israel he's talking about, is that centuries before this prophecy was given, the northern kingdom no longer existed. They've already been carried away by their Assyrians. So we know that this is spiritual in nature, but let's carry on. Verse 2, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which by covenant they break. Although I was an husband unto them, said the Lord. So he's saying there that this is going to be a different covenant. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, said the Lord, I will put my law into their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. See, that's, that's a promise of conversion, of the new birth to people becoming God's people. But let's carry on to verse 34. And they shall teach no more. Every man is neighbor, and every man is brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them. Said the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now God doesn't remember the sins of his people. They're cast into the depths of the sea. And the amazing thing here is that God says he will put their laws in their hearts. Now, it's only a new convert that has the law of God in his heart. It's only the new convert when temptation comes who say, no, this is against the law of God. And temptations comes in different forms. Some of those temptations may come from a non-believer, for example. Oh, let's go out for a drink in the pub. Let's go out and do certain things. 
And the new believer will say, no, 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 I can't do that. The temptation may come, maybe you find yourself under a lot of pressure. And the tempter says, oh, yeah, just express yourself using languages that are abominable. And the new believer says, no, I won't do that because the law of God forbids that. See, when the law of God is written into our hearts, our hearts change. We embrace those laws. We fight for them. We rather die obeying God than keep our life to disobey him. That's what these things do. Let's go to the next one. And it's just a, um, a page later. Jeremiah chapter 32. <clears throat> Verse 39. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. And I will give... Sorry, from verse 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, and they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. See, those who don't believe in eternal security of the believer may be encouraged to read this. It says they would never depart from me. Now that's a new convert here. You know, God regenerating the soul of someone to the extent that we see they're born of fruits from this. And finally, let's go to Ezekiel. And these are just a handful of scriptures that I picked up as I was preparing for this. Ezekiel chapter 11. And we read from verse 19. And I will give them one heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take the stony heart out of your flesh. I will give you a heart. I will give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes. And keep my ordinances. And do them. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. See? New birth. So we see these Old Testament scriptures. Describing the new birth. So Nicodemus, he had no excuse for not understanding what the Lord Jesus Christ was telling him because they were there in the Tanakh. The Jews called the Old Testament the Tanakh. They were there. So let's come back to our text once again. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26. Now when you think of it, I want to actually give a brief overview of chapter 36 and then we'll narrow in to our text. Now, what is chapter 36? Now, if you understand and you've been following a pastor's teaching, I think recently it made mention that chapters were not in the original autographs of the Bible. You know, chapters were added later on. The Old Testament, and remember, was done by a rabbi, I can't remember his name, and the New Testament was done by another believer as well. So, and chapters were just there to, to guide us in understanding. But when you look at those chapters, in many parts, those chapters are in the, in the wrong places. Some chapters, they, you know, they, they, they should start in a different place from where they've added, but it just shows that chapters are not fallible. You know, it's man that split those books into chapters. And why am I saying that? Because if you look at the beginning of chapter 36, it begins with the word also. So when it says also, it means that the narrative doesn't start there or the information given by the author has come previously. 
And then it's just carrying on to what is in the current chapter. And if you look at the previous chapter, which is chapter 35, the previous chapter was a prophecy against Mount Seir. And there were many prophecies in there in chapter 35. I won't go down into them because it's not part of our narrative. I'm just giving this as explanation that chapters are just there. But the whole book of Ezekiel was just one book when it was written. There were no chapter divisions. So it was a prophecy against Mount um, Seir. And then chapter 6 is a prophecy to Israel. And this is spiritual Israel as described in Romans chapter 9. No, in Romans chapter 9, we're informed that for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And what does that mean? It just means that Israel does not mean that every Israelite, biological Israelite, will have salvation. No, it doesn't mean that. Israel is a spiritual term that refers to believers, to born-again Christians. Now, I say this because, believe it or not, among some so-called evangelicals, there are people that say that if you're a Jew, you're automatically qualified to enter heaven. Now, that's a damnable heresy, actually. And when you tell a Jew that, you're not doing them any favor at all. So, chapter 36 is a prophecy to God's genuine people. And why was the prophecy given? As I mentioned earlier, it was given for encouragement. Now, many of God's people were languishing in the Babylonian Empire. Now, we heard of men such as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of Daniel. Well, God delivered those men, but there were probably many other believers there who were suffering. And this prophecy was given for God to assure them that he's not forgotten them, that his plans for them are unequivocable, that they're irrevocable. Those plans will be carried out at their due time. And we look at some of these, and what we see in Ezekiel is God is describing himself to his people. Now, the scripture in general describes God to his people anyway, but more so in Ezekiel chapter 36. And what I want to do is, I just want to give us a brief overview of how he does that in different sections of the chapter. For example, in verses 1 to 7, he instructs us of God's sovereignty, his might, his justice, and his holiness. Well, let's just read from verse 5 to 7. And it reads, Therefore said the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy have I spoken against the residue of the heathen and against all Idumea, which have appointed my land unto their possession with the joy of their heart, with despiteful minds to cast it out for a prey. Prophesy therefore concerning the land of Israel, and say unto the mountain, and unto the hills, to the rivers, and to the valleys. Thus say the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy, and in my fury, because you have borne the shame of the heathen. Therefore, thus say the Lord God, I have lifted up mine hand, surely the heathen that are about you, they shall bear their shame. So God is making a declaration about what he will do to many of the enemies of his people. They shall bear their shame. But in saying that, he's demonstrating his sovereignty. That yes, I know that you've done all these things. You've done them because I allowed you to do them. But these are going to be your consequences for doing them. And then we see an error of his justice as well. well. God will not allow sin 
to be unpunished. Now, many people today, they walk about in the world today, behaving as they please, thinking that they own everything. Well, you see, God is going to have his own day. See, no sin is going to be unpunished. See, what many people think they've done in secret shall be exposed on that day. See, God, he sees everything. You know, many people, they foolishly think that darkness hides God's presence. Well, you see, what sin has done is blinded men to such an extent that they have a warped view of God. They seem to forget that God created the sun that allows us to, to, to see without light. If God can create the sun that shines in homes even before its reason, how much more the creator of the sun, the light he possesses? Do people not think that he who created the sun can shine light into what they think is secret? But this is what God's enemy do. They think they can get away with all the things they do. But let's carry on. In verses 8 to 15, we're instructed about God's grace, his mercy, his justice, his might. Now let's talk about his mercy. Let's just read a few verses from, from verse 8. For ye, O mountain of Israel, ye shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to your people, to my people of Israel, for they are at hand to come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn unto you, and ye shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, even all of it, and the cities shall be inhabited, and the waste shall be builded. We see here God's grace giving to people things that we don't deserve. That's what his grace is. Us sitting there this morning, hearing the gospel, that is part of God's grace, a benefit that he has withheld from many throughout the world. But let's carry on. Verses 16 to 24 instructs us of God's justice, his holiness, his mercy. Now, Verse 18 and 19 describes extracting justice from the Israelites for their wickedness. 18 and 19, let's just quickly read those two verses. Wherefore, I poured out my fury upon them for the blood that they have shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they have polluted it. And I scattered them from among the heathen and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to the doings I judged them. So it's referring to the northern ten tribes that he has dispersed out of their land. So we see his justice there. But we also see his mercy. And when they entered unto the heathen, whether they went, they profaned. So, boy, I, so his mercy, 21, but I had pity for my only name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whether they went. So God had pity upon them. We see his mercy there. Verses 25 to 37 instructs us on God's sovereignty in salvation. We see in these verses that God initiates and completes the salvation of his people. And now, I'd like to just draw three points from our text before we carry on this morning. Just three points. Now, the first is the fact of salvation. The fact of the new birth is taught in these verses. And let's go back to Verse 26. Verse 26. For better context, let's read from verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, 
and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. So we see here that the new birth is orchestrated by God, is initiated by God, is completed by him. This will give you some impetus and some understanding when you see many that says, oh, if you want to come become a Christian, walk down the aisle. No, that's not how it works. It's the Holy Spirit unhindered. The Holy Spirit unperturbed. He is the one who regenerates the souls of the new convert. He is the one who brings about salvation to new believers. It says, a new heart. What is a new heart? Now, to become saved, we need a new heart. We need a heart that is no longer indifferent to the things of God. We need a heart that is sensitive to God's demands, that is sensitive to God's um, claim on our lives. We need a new heart that will not look for excuses when it comes to handling the word of God. We need a heart that will not come to excuses when it comes to obeying God. We need a heart that obeys God unreservedly, unconditionally. Obeys God without question. A heart where, when God's word says, this, it is this. A heart that doesn't read meaning into the word of God. A heart that takes the God's word at face value and runs with it. With the intent of obeying it to the latter. That's what the new heart is all about. A new heart that will not look for ways of excusing calling them Christian liberty. A heart that will not try to live on the edges of sin, but a heart that will try to live as far away from sin as possible. A heart that doesn't want to put himself in any area of offending God. That's a new heart. A heart that will be so sensitive that every experience of the breaking of God's law is a break in that heart. A heart that is so sensitive to sin that can no longer partake in many of the wicked things of this world. And there are many wicked things going on in this world. Some of those things have even infiltrated some things that you may assume are legitimate Christian liberty things. Many, many things. You know, I've got to understand this in my walk with God. There are many things that I used to enjoy even as a young Christian that I no longer enjoy because it is so corrupted. It is so wicked that as a Christian, I can't touch it anymore. See, that's the heart that we need. And that's what the heart that God will give here. But what is he saying? Before he gives a heart, he mentions, he says, he will sprinkle water upon you. And you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Now, let me tell you something. Only someone who has been born again can be cleansed from all their wickedness. Only someone who is born again can be cleansed from all idols. And you see, when we talk about idols, we need to look at the context of the 21st century. There are many idols today that were not in existence when the Bible was written. Let me talk about one that many of you may resonate. What about the idol of football? Now, football, it may be a genuine sport that many may partake in, and I don't have any problem with that. But it's such an idol to many that it's, it's really pity that people will do, go to all length for football's sake. 
I remember this was about 10, 15 years ago. It was, in those days, it was still Saturday that the final game of the league was played. And the cameras went to both two teams who were vying to win the league that year. I'm going back about 15 years now, 15, 16 years. And I can see the cry of the faces of the team that came second. It was, it was, I mean, it was an awful sight for me. I was thinking, is this how much people are taken into this? I mean, to some people, their life comes to a complete standstill when their team loses. Now, that's idle in the eyes of God. But anything that we hold dear more than God, than Christ, is an idol. For example, Christ demands that we love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our being. Let me tell you what that means. That means that if there is anything that could potentially take our love away from Christ, we should be willing to part with it. And we should indeed part with it. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done, when we think about the sacrifice he made, he didn't count it a great thing to leave his glory in heaven, to come into this world. He didn't count it a great thing to allow his creatures to slap him, allow his creatures to spit at him. Creatures that he could destroy in one moment if he so desired. He didn't take a big thing to allow himself to be crucified. And why did he do all this? So that the sins of his people can be forgiven. Now, can there be any more sacrifice than Christ has made for the Christian? So why in this world should we hold on to? No, we shouldn't. We should let go of these sins. Yes, there may be legitimate things that we want to enjoy. But always we should know in the back of our mind that these sins, we're enjoying it subject to Christ. We're enjoying it to the glory of Christ. Now, let me give you an example. Scripture commands that in everything we do, we should glorify God, whether we eat, whether we drink. Now, if you want to know the weaknesses of many people, it's probably at their dinner table. And, you know, it's God created us. It's one reason why I don't make mockery of how people eat, because I know I've got my own faults as well. And it's just us being humans. But if God can command that we glorify him, even in exercising our eating, then is there anything else in which we shouldn't glorify God in? And if we engage in a hobby that we can't glorify God in, then isn't it wise for us to give it up for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake? And that's what he's talking about here, a new heart, a new heart that dedicates all things to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here the fact that God orchestrates the new birth. Second, it teaches us about God's given freedom that results from the new birth. Now, there's a freedom that we have when we become born again. You see, relationally, our relation with God changes. It changes because we're now in a new relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ. See, the relationship we had before is a hate relationship. We hated God. But now, we now love God. And that love for God comes with freedoms. Now, let's, let's come back to I read from verse 27. It says, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Now that's freedom, isn't it? It's freedom to obey God. Freedom from sin. Because when we're not walking in God's statutes, when we're not keeping his judgments, when we're not doing them, what we're doing is that we're being bound to sin. 
We're enslaved to sin. But the moment we begin to walk in the statues, because of our new birth, the moment we begin to obey him, we encounter a freedom as never before. We all of a sudden realize that we're free to worship God. We are free from the bondage of, and yoke of sin. We're free from the demands of sin. You know, many people do not understand the bondage that sin is. Let's quickly turn to Romans, actually. Romans chapter 6 gives us an indication of how much sin demands. Now, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, when he's saying the wages of sin is death, it's not just the fact that wage is the result from sin. Yes, it is. But no, wage is an sorry, death. It's not saying that death is the result of sin. Yes, it is, but that's not the only meaning. It also means that death is an active wage that sin pays. So it's almost like you're lining up for your employment, which is sin. So sin is the master, and sin has a wage that it pays after each. Let me give you some, some examples. A divorce rate in our nation is pretty high, isn't it? But the vast majority of those divorces are caused by adultery. adultery. Now, divorce is the wage of adultery. But along with it goes the ruined lives and the very broken lives of the children involved. I mean, I'm saying this because I, you know, my parents were divorced. So I understand the heartbreak that comes from it. I understand the, the pain that children suffer from it. Children who are innocent parties to whatever caused the divorce. Now, my parents, I don't really know exactly the details of their divorce, but I understand the pain that comes. But not only that, there are many diseases that come through adultery. Many, many of them. I don't really want to go into details. But again, that's another reward for sin. But then the ultimate wage for sin is eternal death. Because as I mentioned earlier, God will always punish sin. But that's not the only verse I want to look at here in Romans chapter 6. Let's look at verse 12. And Paul says in verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the loss thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God, that those that, those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So what is he saying there? He says that we should not allow sin to reign in our body. See? Sin is a very, very unreasonable master. It, is, it demands to be obeyed. But when we become born again, we have freedom from it. It no longer is our master. We master it. And so that's why the new convert now has to natures. He has the nature of God in him, but he has the remaining sin. And that remaining sin is battling it every day. His desire is to mortify that sin, put it to death. And you see, as Christians, we never cease to mortify sin. You see, what I've learned in my 15 years, or 15 to 20 years of being a Christian, is when I think I've gained victory in one sin, God just brings other sins that I need to fight as well, that I didn't realize exist. And, you know, the battle continues till the Lord calls us home. 
We no longer allow sin in our lives. We, 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 we deal with sin. We hate sin. We have freedom from sin. And finally, it teaches us the fruits that result from the new birth. In verse 31. <clears throat> verse 31. Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. That's the fruit of being born again. You hate the things that you've done. You hate it so much that you don't want to do it again. Even when the opportunity comes, you say, no, no, I'm not doing it again. And what you do is you put as many barriers as possible between yourself and that sin, never to do it again. I'm not saying that you always win. There may be times when you may lose, but it's a battle. You will never lose the war. You may lose specific battles, but one loss will motivate you to carry on mortifying that sin. And that's what we see, the fruits that come up. But those fruits are more displayed in Galatians chapter 5. Let's quickly turn to it, please. Galatians chapter 5. I read from verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, a Christian love is the best love that you can imagine. Because a Christian love is sincere. You know, the Christian is willing to love the, what you call the unlovable. It's why you see Christians diligently witnessing Diligently telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Only a heart that loves can do this. A Christian believes that anybody can be saved. Let me give you examples from scripture. The man who was saved on the cross. He went to paradise that same day. Prior to him being saved, he was with the other man making abuses to Christ. God saved him at that point. But what about Saul of Tarsus? He was not the best of men, was he? And as a matter of fact, when God commanded um, in, in, Romans, sorry, in Acts chapter 9, when God commanded that an apostle there goes to speak with him, he said to the Lord that, oh, we've heard of how this man has come to come and take us away. But yet, he obeyed. And he went to speak to Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul. He didn't say, oh, look at that rotten one. No, you can't save him. No, he didn't say that. He went to speak to him. And Paul then became the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the new love that Christians have. We see everybody we see as a potential convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we know that it's only the Holy Spirit that brings about that conversion. But in our own place, we want to obey God. Out of love for God to witness that person. So it's a love of the Lord and love for the lost. But let's carry on. So we're back at Galatians chapter 5. So we've got, so that's the first fruit, love. Then the next one mentioned here is peace. Sorry, joy. Now the, the Christians, the converse heart is always joyful. Even in situations that seem bleak. Why? What brings that joy in the Christian? Because we have that everlasting hope in Christ. 
You know, our joy is the fact that one day we'll be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you one experience that I had recently. It was funny because I was having this pain. And it was, it was a serious pain. Sometimes it almost um, incapacitates me. That's how intense it comes. And I went to see the doctor. Earlier in the week, he comes and he goes. And the doctor said, next time he comes, just go to A&E. So when he came on the Saturday, I told my wife, I said, I think I might need to go to A&E. It's funny, as we're walking out of home, I said to him, I said, who knows, this might be the last time I'll be coming up, you know, I'll be seeing this home. You know, the Lord may take me away. And why did I have that? Well, because I've heard of people having just minor operations, and, you know, the next thing you hear of them is that they're gone. But it's the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ that said, well, there is a God above my pain. And my pain is only there for a season. That pain will one day go away. I will never experience it again. And if it's God's will, that he take me home even through it. So it be. And that's the joy that God gives to every one of us. But my joy is minuscule compared to the joys of these two men that we shall just quickly have a look. And they're called Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 5. Just please, let's quickly turn to it, please. Acts chapter, no sorry, not Acts, it's Acts chapter, it's Paul and Silas, I think, sorry, no, it's, sorry, Paul and Silas, so it's not Acts chapter 5, I'll get there in a minute. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, and then verse 30, verse 23. This is Paul and Silas. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. So when they laid stripes on people in those days, it's not some minor beating here. It's a beating where their backs are lacerated. You know, really, really bleeding out. So they've been beaten. Verse 25. So, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. See, these men, even as they were lacerated in deep pain, they still sang praises unto God. And they praised God. So what, what motivates them? They know that whatever is happening to them is only for a season. One day, they shall be in the direct presence of the Lord where people will no longer be able to harm them. And that's what motivates them. That's what gives them the joy. Let's move on back to um, Galatians chapter 5. Peace. We have a peace that passes all understanding. You know, there may be storms around us. There may be different things going on, upheavals and all that. But we have that peace knowing that our lives is in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because it's in his hands, it's in the safest place that I can possibly be. Any other place we don't want our lives to be, we want it to remain there. And that gives us the faith to know that whatever is going on with us, we know that it's not beyond his will. He knows all things. He sees things that we don't see. 
And we leave it there. So we have peace in our heart. It's that peace that even unbelievers, they don't really understand. They see you laughing. They say, whoa, look at all the things around you. You're still smiling. How can you do that? Well, it's a peace that the Lord gives to his people. Then long-suffering. No, this is patience. Long-suffering. You, you, you endure. Gentleness. You don't do, you don't do tit for tat. You allow God to, to, to take control. To, you allow him you allow him to take vengeance on your behalf. Goodness, faith. I mean, faith is an, you know, it's a wonderful gift possessed by Christians. You know, we have faith that, yes, the Lord is in control. It may not look so from what we're seeing now, but yes, he is in control. And because he is in control, I'm happy. Yes, things may not look good at this time, but I know the Lord is in control. Faith. Meekness. Now, meekness, some people mistake it for weakness. Now, meekness and weakness, they're two different things. You can be meek and still be strong. When it comes to the things of God, you don't take no for an answer. You know, you tell people to their face that what you're saying is wrong. It's against the will of God. You don't become a jellyfish whereby, you know, you, you accept what every man tells and say, oh yeah, that's fine, that's fine, as, as if everything is fine. No. You still stand firm on the word of God. But you're meek in the sense that you attack the doctrine, not the person. So you attack the false teaching, but not the false teacher. You leave that person in the hands of God. And you might have to say very, very difficult words. For example, even tell a false teacher that one day you'll have to give an account for your falsehood to God. You're being, you're being loving to that false teacher. You're not being um, in any way disparaged to them. But maybe what you tell them may jolt them into reality that they need to come out of this false teaching and start teaching what the word of God says. Or if they're unconverted, they need to seek salvation or maybe get away from the pulpit because that's not where they belong. So meekness does not mean weakness, but meekness means gentleness, means humility. Next one is temperance. Against such there is no law. So we see the, the six the, the nine fruits of the Spirit. And that's what animates from being born again. Now, the degrees of each of these fruits may vary from one Christian to another. See, that's where, when we look at the parable of the sower, there are the 30, 60, 100 fold. But there are men whom the Lord has used that have exercised much faith than others. But, you see, those fruits are present in every believer. Every one of those nine fruits. And before I close this morning, I want to ask you, are you born again? Are those fruits present in your life? When you open up the Bible, for example, when you open up the book of God, the Bible, the word of God, do you open up with the intent of obeying what you read, of following what you read, of submitting to what God's demands are? Or do you look for ways in which you can excuse some of the things you do and say, oh no, that doesn't matter. If God could kill two people for telling a lie, then we realize how seriously God takes sin. And we realize the necessity of the new birth. Because you see, it's not just a matter of changing our behavior. I need to repeat this. It's a matter of us becoming born again. 
Many change their behaviors. Many change a little thing here and there. But that's just dealing with the symptoms. See, the root cause, the root cause of sin is hatred of God. It's an unregenerated soul. That's the root cause. And that is what needs to be dealt with. I remembered many years ago, I was asked to come and speak to my sister. Because in the eyes of those who told me to speak to her, they felt she needed to improve her behavior. And the amazing thing is that at that point in time, I wasn't yet a believer. But I remembered that when I got to her, I had to tell her the gospel, that you need to be born again. Now, at that time, I thought I was a believer, but it was many years later that I realized I was when I actually became converted. But I knew enough then to know that you can't just change your behavior. The root cause is you need to be born again. No, many people in this world, they've been successful to some extent in changing their behavior. You know, we have many ex-crooks that come to some of these things and, you know, help young people to, to leave their bad ways or try and tell people in schools to say, oh, no, don't go down the drug route, it's going to harm you and all that. But they're no longer involved. They've managed to come clean, quote, unquote, from drugs. Many people do that, but that's not what the Bible is talking about here. The Bible is talking about a complete change, a complete renewal, regeneration of the spirit, a complete regeneration of the soul. You see, what this brings about is you're changing, your, your thinking changes. Your thought pattern completely changes. And when your thought pattern changes, then your behavior changes. The way you see things changes. Radical change from those who are not Christians to the extent that people will no longer recognize you. They say, is this the person I used to talk to? May the Lord bless his words to our souls. We will now round up our service this morning by singing hymn 280 from Gospel Hymns.